Last week we looked at verses 8 through 10. This morning we'll focus in on verses 11 and 12. Next week we'll focus in on verses 13, 14, and 15. But today, honing in, taking our scope and having the sights set right on verses 11 and 12, we have to understand the context because 8 through 15 are all really one section that are closely, everything is closely tied together. And so Paul tells the church, beginning in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Last week we said the big idea of this text is don't be taken captive by Christ belittling philosophies. Don't be taken captive by them. Anything that wants to belittle the person and work of Jesus, anything that wants to belittle the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus for your salvation and your sanctification, don't be taken captive. Because Christ is bigger, He's better, and He's more beautiful than anything that the world has to offer. And what we said about philosophy, and if you look at verse 8, we said that philosophy that Paul is referring to here, it is man's attempt to explain the purpose of human life apart from the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's what philosophy is. Listen, philosophy is man's attempt to explain the purpose of human life apart from the supreme and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Now the good news for those who buy into human philosophy is that philosophers and religious leaders are never going to be out of a job. Because class is never going to be over. Because they're never going to find the answer apart from Jesus. Now, the bad news, the bad news is them not getting the answer. They're never going to have it answered. And it ultimately is going to produce a life of death. A life, a living death. Graduation will never come because the answers are not found apart from Jesus. Listen to Paul's words. We've read them in previous weeks. He is the image. That is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things. And in Christ all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything Christ 
might be preeminent. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now listen, this is the thing, is that the attempt to find salvation and real spiritual life by belittling Jesus Christ is like trying to get to Atlanta by hopping up on I-20 and traveling west. You're just not going to get there. You will not get to Jesus by going the opposite direction of Him. And you will not get to real life by going the opposite direction. Now what we've got to come to a conclude, we've got to come to this realization is that we're not bulletproof. We're not bulletproof in our minimizing the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. We're tempted to minimize Him. We're tempted to belittle Him in, in um, very subtle very kind of hidden and seemingly biblical ways and we add stuff to Jesus or we take away from Him. And last week I put up on the screen probably 10 or 11 or 12 ways in which we do that. Well, the first way that I put up that you and I have a tendency to do is legalism. And what we said legalism was Christ plus, does anybody remember? Religious rules, that's right, religious rules. Christ plus religious rules equals salvation. And so, this is the thing, is that the rules are always different in different church cultures. They're always different, they're always a little different, you know, and, and so, um, but the thing is, is that the rules are very important. And if you keep the rules, then you have spiritual life. And if you were to ask a legalist, how important is Jesus? A legalist would say, oh, he is very important. Oh, he is so, he's supremely important. But so is keeping the rules. And if I believe in Jesus and I keep the religious rules, then I can have salvation. That's legalism. And in that way, we belittle Jesus Christ. We, we, uh, we talked about do-goodism. All right, and we said, what is that? That is Christ plus doing good deeds equals salvation. Now, just like legalism has different rules in different cultures, do-goodism has different kind of good things. I mean, in, in some cultures, it's, oh, I, I bail my brother out of jail every time he gets a DUI. That's got to be worth something. Or, or I help my neighbor out when she's sick and cook or something. That's got to be worth something. Or I give $25 to the Boy Scouts of America every spring, like clockwork. Boy, that's got to be worth something. Now, do I believe in Jesus? Oh, sure, I've... I've read the Bible before, I, I believe that deal, but I do good works and that's really what I'm hanging my hat on and therefore I have real spiritual life. That belittles Jesus. Belittles Jesus. We talked about denominationalism. We talked about as Christ plus my denomination equals salvation. I've got friends that are across all kinds of denominations. And I will tell you, I have, I have Baptist friends who would not walk into a non-denominational church or into a Pentecostal church. Why? Because that church is not Baptist. And Baptist for them means biblical. And so non-Baptist means heretical. Therefore, me or my family won't walk in there. That is Christ plus denominationalism equals salvation. Well, I have friends who are Pentecostal. I have Pentecostal friends who would not go to a Baptist church if it was the only one in their city for another 50 miles. Why? Because the Baptists don't have the full gospel, and therefore they'll drive two hours to go to church before they were to go to a Baptist church. Christ plus my denomination. Mysticism. That is Christ 
plus my mystical experiences equals real spiritual life. Real salvation. I remember a number of years ago, I was, I was counseling a couple. A, a couple that was having marriage problems. And, and the wife insisted that God was speaking to her through her dreams. And she was doing things with the family's money because of what God was saying to her through these dreams. Now all along, while I was counseling, I was giving them homework to do. Reading their Bible meditating, journaling, praying. And she would come into counseling and she would say, God spoke to me. He clearly spoke to me in my dream and this is what I needed to do. And I asked the question, did you do your homework? Well, no. Did you read your Bible? Well, no. Did you spend time journaling and praying? Well, no. But God spoke to me. I know He did. And I told her, I said, do you really think that God would spend 2,000 years inscripturating a book and then another 2,000 years preserving it to give it to you so that you could know exactly what His will is for your life and for you to ignore it every day and He's going to speak to you in a dream? I don't think He is. She didn't come back to counseling. We talked about successism. We talked about successism where Christ plus success equals salvation. Now, the most popular and the most read pastor in America today believes in successism. So, um, we probably all know who he is, but this is what he has stated. He says, God is keeping a record of every good deed you've ever done. And in your time of need, because of your generosity, God will move heaven and earth to make sure that you're taken care of. Now, this is essentially the message that he preached. He's saying, listen, God exists for your happiness. He has some rules and principles for you to live by so that you can get what you want, so that if you follow them, you can have whatever you want. That's successism. It's Jesus Christ plus success equals salvation. And for this guy, it's a minimization of Jesus to a very big degree, and it is an emphasis on your works, your happiness, your success. And then one we didn't talk about last week that we've talked about in previous weeks is personal convictionism. It says, Jesus Christ plus my personal convictions equals salvation. This is where we say Christ is good, He is essential for salvation, but real life and real fellowship and real joy and real purpose are found with the people who share my personal convictions. Now, it may be gun control or politics or sports teams, or education. But what we say is that Christ is good. He's really good. But for those of us who are enlightened, for those of us who have reached a higher plane of spiritual existence, we know that our personal convictions is really where true fellowship and true joy are found. This is belittling to Jesus Christ. So this is what I want to say to you. It's the same thing I told you last week. Do not be taken captive by philosophies of men. Do not be taken captive by human traditions. Do not be taken captive by personal things that you want to add to Jesus in order to have a better spiritual life because the minute you start adding to Jesus, you lose Jesus. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Because what 
What Paul is saying is here is you've got to understand that Jesus is bigger, he's better, and more beautiful than denominationalism. He's bigger and better and more beautiful than mysticism. He's bigger and better and more beautiful than personal convictionism. He's better than all of that. Look, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. Listen, you have everything you need for a life of joyful and powerful worship because Jesus is the fullness of Godness and He's inside of you. Paul could say, I rest my case. I rest my case, but he doesn't. He builds on the argument. But what he wants us to see is that what the world has to offer and what religion has to offer and what philosophy has to offer is empty and what Christ has to offer is is full. It's full. And we need to see the fullness of Godness and the fullness of beauty in Jesus Christ. Now what we see today in verses 11 and 12 is that Jesus is not only bigger and fuller and more complete and more awesome than any other philosophy of this world, He's also better than anything. And so what I want to do is I want to give you two truths. I'm going to give you two truths right now that demonstrate why Jesus Christ is better than all other belief systems. We see the first one in verse 11. The first truth that demonstrates why Christ is bigger and better and more beautiful is that Christ has transformed your depraved heart. Christ has transformed your depraved heart. If you're a Christian in this building today, Christ has transformed your depraved heart, and that's why He is better. Let's read the text. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Keep your eyes down. Paul answers three questions right here. He answers, what, how, and who? What happened? How did it happen? And who's responsible for making it happen? So just just keep looking down at verse 11 right there. First of all, what happened? Well, he says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. If you're taking notes and, and, and you're asking the question, what happened? The answer is, you were spiritually circumcised. That's the point. You were spiritually circumcised. Now, physical circumcision was an outward physical sign of God's covenant relationship with His people Israel. We read all about it in Genesis chapter 17. You can go there and read that this afternoon and see the origin of circumcision. Now, early on in Israel's history, the baby's father, the baby boy's father, would take the baby on the eighth day and perform the circumcision circumcision surgery as a public testimony that this baby is part of the covenant people of God Israel. That's what he would do. It would be a public sign that he is part of us. Now it, it ultimately was intended, now listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 10 tells us that ultimately outward physical circumcision was intended to be a sign and a symbol of an inward reality of a circumcised heart. That was the intention. But, but year after year and generation after generation of the people of Israel gone by, and it, it was not a source of humility and worship for, for Israel. What did it become? A source of tradition? A source of pride? A source of racism? Listen, 
by the time that Jesus is born, there were Jewish men who walked around with their chest stuck out in the air saying, we are the circumcision. All of the Gentiles, everybody else, they are the uncircumcision. We are the spiritual ones. We are the ones that God loves. They are the ones who are unspiritual and unclean and the one that God hates. We would not dare have fellowship with them. We would not dare walk in their homes. We are the circumcision. They are the uncircumcision. And so the very purpose of God in the Old Covenant to circumcise His people as a sign and a symbol that they were His and that they were holy and that they were worshipers became exactly the opposite of that. It was a source of pride and arrogance and racism and hatred. And this is what Paul says to the church. Look down at verse 11 again. Paul is saying to the church, he's saying, you're not physically circumcised. And that's completely cool. Because what you received in Christ is infinitely better than physical circumcision. He's saying you are spiritually circumcised, not by the work of your earthly father's hands to any part of your body, but by the work of your heavenly father's hands to your heart. Just as an earthly father would circumcise his baby son physically, your heavenly father has circumcised you spiritually. He has cut away your old sinful heart. And so what has happened? You're circumcised. But how did that happen? How did that happen? That's the question that we want to ask here. And look back down at the text, verse 11. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of of Christ. First of all, notice right there that Paul says the circumcision was made how? How was it made? Without hands. This is Paul's way of saying that it was the Lord Himself who did the circumcision. All right? Now, the spiritual circumcision, it sounds really cool and it sounds a lot less painful than physical circumcision. But we have to ask the question what exactly is it? Like, what actually went on? Now, this is the thing. I believe that this spiritual circumcision is merely one way to describe God's work of regenerating a person's life from something old to something new, from something depraved to something holy, from something terrible to something glorious. And he uses a variety of ways to picture that in the Bible, and circumcision is one of them. Paul does not give us a full picture of exactly what's going on in this spiritual circumcision in this verse. But I believe that one of the clearest, most fullest explanations of what is going on in spiritual circumcision is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And Wayne, did we get that passage up on the, up on the screen? Ezekiel 36, yes. All right. And so I want to read to you. You can look up on the screen or turn to your Bibles. But I believe that this is full and vivid description of what Paul is referring to in spiritual circumcision. Folks, this is huge right here. So stay locked in on what God has to say in His Word. God says through the prophet Ezekiel to His people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What? What are you doing, God? God is cleansing you from the impurity of your sin and the idolatry of your sin. That's what he's doing for you, believer. He's looking at your life and he's saying that you are unethical. You are dishonest. You are selfish. Your life is impure and it is immoral. And the way that you're living is filthy and polluted. And God is saying, I'm going to come in and cleanse you of all of that. He's also seeing that you are an idolater. You are essentially a pagan because you either worship yourself or you worship money or you worship sex or you worship success or you worship your own way of doing life and God is looking at all of the emptiness of that and the vanity of that and the ultimate doom and destruction of all of that and He's saying, I'm going to cleanse you of that too. I'm looking at your impurity, I'm looking at your idolatry and I'm going to clean you up. That's you. Uh, We're not just talking about the Colossians here. We're not talking about theoretical. We're talking about you and your life. God is saying, I'm going to cleanse you of all of that. What else is he saying? He said, I'm going to give you an entirely new heart. Now, your heart is who you are. Your heart is who you are on the inside. And God is saying, through the spiritual circumcision, that I'm going to come in and I'm going to make a new you. The old you is not going to live anymore. The old you is not going to be there anymore. I'm going to make a new you. I'm going to take who you are, pull that out, and give you a new you. And he says, I'm going to give you a new spirit. Does anybody know what spirit this is? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. God is saying, you have a spirit of selfishness, and rebellion, you have a spirit of sinfulness, you have a spirit of independence and autonomy, you have a spirit that is ultimately going to lead you down the road to perdition rather than the road to glory, and I'm going to take that spirit out, and I'm going to put inside of you the third member of the Holy Trinity. What else does he do He causes you to live a life of joyful obedience to Him. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something about legalism and denominationalism and personal convictionism and do-goodism and mysticism. Whenever we add that stuff to Jesus, that does never create a life of more joy. It never does. It it can give you some happiness because you're affirmed because if you keep these rules or do this thing, then you feel like you're in good place. But ultimately, it's an empty road. It's a vain road. And what what God is saying in this this new circumcision that is going on, the spiritual circumcision, is I'm going to cause you to live a life of joyful obedience, glad obedience. Psalm 16, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore, and you're going to get to enjoy them because of what I'm going to do. Church, 
this is the most amazing, the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most awesome, the most miraculous, the most powerful thing that could ever happen to a human being. And if it's happened to you, could you say amen? God has circumcised you spiritually. It's a miracle. Let's ask the question then finally, who's responsible for making it happen? Because that's where Paul is trying to get us to. He's trying to get us to, well, who's responsible for this? Look down at verse 11 one more time. In him you are circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of who? Christ, of Christ. He's saying, listen, the old circumcision that was outward and physical and unredemptive was part of the old covenant. That's what it was part of, part of the old covenant. The new circumcision that is inward and spiritual and fully redemptive is part of the new covenant. And do you know who ushered in the new covenant? Does anybody know who ushered in the new covenant? Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul records exactly what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed. On the night that he was betrayed, they're enjoying the Passover, and when they're finishing up the Passover, Jesus looks around, and they all have their cup of wine, and he looks at his apostles, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. In my blood. The writer of the Hebrews says he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You see, the spiritual circumcision wasn't something that God did magically It wasn't something that he did arbitrarily. God couldn't do that. He's bound to his word. A price had to be paid for spiritual circumcision to be a reality in your life. That just happened. God didn't say, okay, I'm just going to do away with that old old deal. I'm going to rip up that covenant. I'm just going to draw up a whole new covenant. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah, he's got to rip the old one up and bring in the new, but a price has to be paid for in order that to happen. And Jesus is the one who steps into human history and walks up a hill up to Golgotha and gets on a cross and sheds his blood. And on that cross, he's saying, I'm cutting a better covenant. I'm cutting a glorious covenant. I'm cutting a new covenant so that they don't have to rely on some old, outward, non-redemptive circumcision. They can rely on what is inward and spiritual an eternal, a new covenant, a new circumcision, they can live with me forever. And so what Jesus did on the cross was create an entirely new covenant between you and God in which you are radically changed from the inside out. Your old heart is removed. Your old life is removed. Your old gods are removed. Your old everything is removed. And in place, you have a new heart, you have a new spirit, you have a new life, you have a new allegiance, you have a new everything by Jesus Christ. So Christ has transformed your depraved heart, and that's the message of verse 11. 
Look down at verse 12. Christ has also resurrected your dead life. He's not only transformed your depraved heart, He's resurrected your dead life. Paul says, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Now Paul does the same thing in verse 12 that he did in verse 11. He answers the questions, what, how, and who? He's saying, what what exactly happened? He's saying, you were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him. Just look at the text again. He's saying, listen, you were baptized. You You were baptized, which means you were buried with Him and raised with Him, just as Jesus was physically buried in the tomb, you were spiritually buried, dead, dead and buried. And just as Jesus physically rose up out of the tomb on the third day, you have risen up from spiritual death to spiritual life. He draws that correlation between the two, death and life. Now, I think the question that some of you who think kind of systematically through the scriptures and you think theologically. Like you really study the scriptures and you're like, I just don't know exactly what what Paul is saying here. Is he talking about spirit baptism? He's talking about Holy Spirit baptism or water baptism. Let me just look back down at the text. All right, because he says, listen, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful of God who raised him from the dead. Is he talking about water or is he talking about Holy Spirit? Well, I want to answer that question by saying yes. Yes. He he is talking about Holy Spirit baptism and the implications are water baptism as well. I, I want to tell you, church, that I believe from the Scriptures that there is a distinction between Holy Spirit baptism and water baptism. And at the very same time, there is an unbreakable union between Holy Spirit baptism and water baptism. And I want us to understand that. So if you're a note taker, I want to give you definitions of each. Holy Spirit baptism and water baptism and just explain them a little bit. It's not going to get too complex. Holy Holy Spirit baptism is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby He places you into union with Jesus Christ and His church. It is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby He places you into union, permanent union with Jesus Christ and His church. I'm trying to find one of the simplest verses to describe this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul says, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique work to the church. And what I mean by that is Old Covenant Old Testament saints did not experience the quote-unquote baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was something that God ushered in through the New Covenant, through the work of Jesus on the cross, through the time of Pentecost when the church really got got its origin 
all right? That's when the, the Holy Spirit comes on and baptizes people into Christ and into the church. So it's a unique event to the church. It's also a universal event to the church. Now listen, universal. Now you're, at, you're saying, Ryan, now, now are you a universalist? This is what I would say. I would say I'm a universalist to the extent that every Christian, every true Christian in every church has the Holy Spirit. Right. I uh, was leaving a church one time. Jamie and I were together mutually. And uh, as has been the case on more than one occasion, I uh, met with the pastor before we left. I felt like it was the right thing to do. It was the best thing to do. It was the honest thing to do. And so I met with the pastor. One of the reasons we were leaving is because they were having a services that were kind of not on Sunday mornings. They were kind of quiet. It's kind of invite only, it seemed like. They were receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit in these services. And and it became where people start on Sunday mornings. They were getting slain in the Spirit and falling down and hollering and dancing and all of this kind of thing. It was just some stuff that was a little bit nervous, but it was rooted in this in this baptism of the Spirit deal. And I met with the pastor, and, and I told him, I said, listen, we love you guys, and y'all are loving people, but what you're saying is, is because I haven't been slain in the Spirit. You're saying I don't have the Spirit, and so I can't be spiritual. I can't be as spiritual as you. And I said, I read the book of Acts just like you do, and I, I see a little bit where you're getting this, but what Paul and what Jesus and what the rest of the Bible says is that when you receive Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. And I can't get beyond that. And he looked at me, and he said, so you're telling me what you have is enough and you don't need anything else. Making me look as if and sound as if I'm arrogant. Because I'm not willing to get more. I said, it has nothing to do with me and what I've done. It has everything to do with what God has done in me. And this is His work. And there's nothing that I can do in order to achieve or attain or retain the Holy Spirit. It's everything that He has done and that He has promised He will do. And so, it's a universal work in the church. It's a unifying work in the church. And this is the reason I have confidence in Redeemer Church, even when we have difficulties, even when we go through disagreements, I have great confidence. Why? Ryan, how can you be so confident? How can you be so sure? Because I believe, because every Christian has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truthfulness of the Word of God. And if you and I are going to listen to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal that truth to us, and we're going to rally around that same truth, and we're not going to be divided. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And it happens through spirit baptism. And then you have water baptism. Water baptism is the public statement you make to the church and to the world that you identify yourself with Jesus Christ. It is the public statement that you make to the church and to the world that you identify with Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus died and was buried physically, you died and were buried spiritually. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically, you have been raised from the dead spiritually. Now listen to Romans 6. Don't worry about turning there, but just listen to what Paul teaches in Romans 6. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so is Paul talking about Holy Spirit baptism in Romans 6 or water baptism there? And again, I would say yes, he is, because there's an unbreakable union between the two that anybody who experiences Holy Spirit baptism, union with Jesus, union with the church, wants to get up in a baptistry and symbolize and testify to the church and to the world that I now belong to Him. I now belong to Him. I want to read to you a paraphrase. It's kind of like Carolyn's amplified version that she reads a lot. This would be my amplified version of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you were baptized. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And naturally, you were baptized in water. You experienced permanent and perfect union with Christ and His church through powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And you made a public statement to that effect through water baptism. You've said to everyone that my life is no longer my life, it's Christ's life. And my identity is no longer my identity, it's Christ's identity. My worth is no longer my worth, it's, but now it's wrapped up in Jesus Christ and I give 100% of the credit of that work to the Holy Spirit who has baptized me into Jesus Christ. And so, how big of a deal is water baptism in the church? It's a huge deal. Redeemer, I just want to tell you, I don't think there's a bigger deal in the church than water baptism. There's not a bigger deal in the church than water baptism. Why? Because it is the testimony that God has regenerated a soul and has delivered them from death to life and from hell to heaven. What is bigger than that? So how did it happen? Look back down at verse 12. How did all this happen? Does anybody want to be brave and ask, how did this baptism, uh, anybody want to answer, how did this baptism happen? Mm -hmm. Carolyn, press in right there, though. You're, you're, You're right. But he uses a little phrase before that that tells us. Through faith. Through faith. In the powerful working of God. Listen to this, y'all. This is the only time in the New Testament that a New Testament writer uses the word faith and it does not have the object of the Lord. It doesn't have the Lord as the object. What is the object here? Faith in the what? Powerful work of God. What is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying that Holy Spirit was not, the Holy Spirit baptism was not a work of magic. Just like spiritual circumcision was not a work of magic, this is not a work of magic. This is not a, an arbitrary work that, that God just says, poof. No, no, this is the deal. You heard that Jesus Christ loves you and that He sacrificed Himself for you. You heard through the preaching of the Word of God that you're a sinner and that He's a Savior. 
you heard that not only did He die for you, but on the third day, He rose from the dead in victorious um, power over death and over hell and over Satan and over sin. And you heard that if you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can have the same deliverance that Jesus won for you. And you know what you did? You believed that. You believed it. And what happened? You were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then you got baptized in the church to testify to the church and to the world that I now belong to Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying you believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Finally, let's ask that little question at the very end. Who is responsible for making that happen? Who is responsible for making that happen? And I just simply want to draw your attention to the very end where it says God raised him. Him. Him from the dead. Jesus Christ is responsible for you experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so church, I really don't know what your propensity to disbelieve the gospel is and to add something to Jesus. I don't know if it's legalism, denominationalism, mysticism, personal convictionism, do-goodism. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, I want you to study Colossians 2, verses 8 to 15, and you come back and you talk to the Lord about any justification that you have for tacking on anything in addition to Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, He is speaking to you very loudly and very clearly through this book and saying, Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is bigger. Jesus Christ is supreme. Bow to Him and nothing else and no one else, and you will live a life of joyful obedience. Let's pray. Father, there are two, two kinds of people in this building right now. Two kinds, and we want to admit that. There are those people whose hearts have been transformed and whose lives have been resurrected. And in our time of singing, Lord, would you cause us to sing and to exult and to praise Jesus Christ who has rescued our dead lives, who has raised our lives from the dead in such a way that we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And for anybody who is in this building who has yet to experience spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism, and they know nothing of the supremacy and and sufficiency of Jesus in their lives because they've not crossed over, I pray that today, by the powerful working of the Spirit, as they've heard the Word of God, that they will be rescued today. That they will be resurrected today. That they will become new lives. That their old hearts will be taken out. That new hearts will be put in. That their their old gods will be removed. And that new gods will be put in. Lord, I pray that as they heard the Gospel, that through faith, Faith in your powerful work, they will be resurrected from the dead. Make that happen, Lord, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. If I had a megaphone that I could stand out on 
that lawn and use that would reach the ears of every person on this planet. And I had 20 seconds to use it. I would say, I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I stake my entire life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, I am the most pitiful person on the planet if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And I'm comfortable with that. Let's praise our triune God who worked a work of spiritual circumcision and Holy Spirit baptism. We have been made new. Praise Him.